God is good all the time, all the time. Okay, I'm going to give some of you another go. God is good all the time, not good-ish, not good-ish. But sometimes in the Bible, people do questionable or even awful things, and we think, is God good? And often when we read those things, what we can say rightly is that the Bible doesn't approve of everything that it records. Now, to some of the times when we have this moment of good-ish, but we don't have that option with the book of Joshua, which we are reading and using for our summer preaching series at the moment, because the book of Joshua is the record of how the people of Israel took over the land of the Canaanites in a military campaign which involved them killing many people. And in our reading today, God will make it clear that this was his plan achieved by his power. It would be weird for Christians and those who live in a culture that has deeply Christian foundations to read this and not have some kind of struggle with it. I love that phrase that Tacconi used, faithful wrestling. Okay, that is, that, that is a, a, a normal, acceptable response to this. And because we're using this book over the summer, because we're expecting to hear from God uh, to us uh, through it, we felt it was really important to deal with this issue early on of what happened, particularly with that conquest. How does that help us or make it strange for us to understand who God is and what our mission as God's people today is as well? And we've sung in our worship this morning about God's victory. And we've also heard through contributions of difficult process. Uh, And some of that is going on in the book of Joshua. And so I'm going to explain as best I can in a short period of time what I believe is going on with this and how uh, followers of Jesus should understand it so that we do at the end say, no, God is good and not just good-ish. And then I'm going to also look at what this passage that we're going to look at tells us about Joshua's mission and what it tells us about the mission that Jesus has given his people today as well. And if that sounds like I'm squeezing at least two sermons into one slot, well, that's kind of because I am. So we'll see how it goes. So our reading is from Joshua chapter 5, and it comes from just before the first battle in the conquest. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, Thus you shall do for six days. 
Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is God's word. Why don't we pray that he would speak to us through it today? Lord, we thank you so much that you have already brought us today to to sing of your goodness. And Lord, many of us here would would affirm that. And we want to affirm it in all things. We want to be sure of it. And so we pray for grace today to understand what's going on here and to understand who you truly are and see your goodness and be conformed by that. And Lord, also just for those who are here who, who aren't sure that you're good, God, open their eyes today. Have mercy today. Let them see your goodness. Help all of us to see your goodness and want to praise you more. Amen. Amen. So when we come to books like Joshua, we find things in the Bible that seem to suggest or or complicate for us our vision of God and our understanding of his goodness. We need to read them and we need to think about them carefully and and prayerfully. If we just immediately dismiss it of, no, I don't like that, or no, that can't possibly be true, Uh, we can get ourselves in trouble. We need to think, have we misunderstood what we've read? Or have we misunderstood what goodness is and applied our own incorrect standards to God's? I think in the case of the book of Joshua, both those things are at play. But I am not here today to tell you that this conquest didn't take place, that the warfare that we read in this book didn't happen that people weren't killed, nor am I going to say that it had nothing to do with God. This was God's plan for that place and that moment. But I want us to have as much clarity as we possibly can of what is being said and why these things happened. So let's start with a bit of background. So 400 years before our reading, the one true God, Yahweh, interrupted the life of an elderly couple called Abraham and Sarah. Uh, They didn't have kids, they couldn't have kids, and they had no idea who he was. And yet God interrupted their life and revealed himself to them and said to them, I am going to make of you a great nation. Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's descendants were to worship and serve Yahweh in a land that he would give them, so that as they did that in that land, all the other nations around them, and in fact all the nations of the world, could see the goodness of God. God. And God explained this wasn't going to happen for 400 years, at which time the sinful behavior of the people currently living in the land would be at its absolute worst. We get glimpses of what these people were like in the Old Testament, and actually archaeological um, discoveries and, and other ancient non-biblical texts agree with the picture that's presented. They were proud and they were greedy They were unjust and they were ungenerous. They were oppressive. They were sexually immoral in all sorts of awful ways. They worshipped demonic false gods 
and they even sacrificed their children to them. And God is too good to be okay with that. There is a time for all people and all cultures when God says, enough. Now, whenever the issue of God's judgment comes up, one of the things that people might often say is, oh, but isn't God a God of love? As one theologian says, I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, but then I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. He hated the wicked things that the Canaanites were doing to themselves and to others. He hates to see his people abused and oppressed. He hates to see his creation ruined and marred. And this was to be the moment when he stopped that for those people. The more I think we were to think about this, were we to be able to be placed in that culture, unless we were probably the most powerful people in it, the more we might start to think, God, could you get to work a bit sooner, please? Could you come and act, please? And we often do this, don't we? God is at fault in one way or another. He acts or he hasn't acted yet. And we struggle with that. We want the world to be put to rights. Judgment is when God does that. And because he is just, he will do that for all places, for all people, for all time. What we have here is a very specific and unique instance of that happening ahead of the time when it will for most people. This means that the conquest of Canaan cannot be seen as ethnic cleansing, as is sometimes said. So there will be a lot of, well, there's God's people who are attacking these other people. That, to us, has resonances of ethnic cleansing. But the Canaanites were not judged because of their ethnicity, but because of their iniquity. There is no sense of racial superiority here because Israel is specifically told, you are not being given this land because you're superior to them. God says that. Don't, you, don't get any idea that I'm doing this because you're so good. It's because they're so bad. And I'm using you to clear them out. And there are members of the people of God who behave like the people in the land did. And they receive the same punishment because God is fair. And eventually, all the people of God are expelled from the land because they refuse to obey and follow God, even despite all the goodness and all the good things he's done for them. And even the people who were given the land, we call them Israel, they are Israel, but they weren't all ethnic Israelites either. They're described as a mixed multitude because they had been in Egypt and they were brought out of Egypt and God did that so mightily that some people in Egypt said, I am going to follow your God too and I'm going to be part of your people. And they were welcomed in to do so. The story of Ruth is one particular famous later example of this same thing happening. And even within the book of Joshua, there are a few Canaanites who do turn to Yahweh for mercy and they receive it because he is a merciful God. And all those who call on him can receive that. 
So as we read through this story, when you read it in your own time as well, that is some of the, the, the reasoning of what is going on. And then the other question we need to ask is, what actually does go on in this conquest? It does seem full of death and destruction. And there is a lot of that. But God tells Moses what's going to happen in Exodus 23. He says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. That phrase drive out is used a lot in the conquest narrative. There is destruction. That word is used too. God's judgment comes on some of the Canaanites in their death. But the purpose of the campaign from Israel's point of view is eviction. The narrative focuses on certain cities being attacked. And in our reading, we read about the first of them, Jericho. We think of, okay, a city being attacked. Well, we live in a city, so we know what a city's like, don't we? That word doesn't mean that here. There just aren't that many people around, uh, for one thing. When you read of city uh, in the Old Testament, it tends to be a military fortification. It was inhabited by soldiers and officials. Obviously, hangers-on, but primarily that's what it was about. It would be like, I don't know, like the castle complex in Edinburgh, not all the residential area all around it. Cities weren't very big. Jericho could be marched around seven times in one day, and there'd still be time for a battle afterwards. So even if you like max that out of like, I don't know, let's say it took them an hour to go around it, it was seven times in 14 hours of daylight, and it's still going to be a battle. Okay, maybe it's like a, a mile circumference, a three-mile circumference, something like that. It's not big. Some estimates put the population of Jericho as as low as like 100. Most people lived outside the city walls, and because they knew that the forts would be the focus of any fighting and that those forts, you know, they're not safe and big and strong like ours would be, when people know there was an army approaching, they tended to flee. Now, the language used in Joshua doesn't necessarily suggest this to you. So, for example, Joshua 10, verse 20, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. Or Joshua eleven twenty three, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So this is war rhetoric. This is black and white. This is bold and confident. And in a way, it's like poetry. It's telling us the truth without necessarily being factually accurate. And we know that this is how it's meant to be read. So this isn't me saying the Bible's not true. The Bible is true. But we know, we have, you, have to, you understand the truth of the Bible by reading it as it is written. And we have these triumphant statements, and sometimes right next to them are the descriptions of the reality. So the full verse of Joshua 10, verse 20, Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe. We wiped them out, and those that were left went back. Okay. Joshua took the whole land... Years later, God says to him, there remains yet very much land to possess. 
That's interesting. That's, that's changing our expectation of what this text is trying to do. We're like, we hear that and we're like, okay, so how many people does that mean? I was like, no, it's, it, someone's used the sporting analogy. Which, you know, we totally destroyed them. Like, well, they scored some goals. You just scored a lot more. And when you see that, it's there in the text. It doesn't me making up. It's there when you see that. And then when you remember what God had said, that he would drive the, Canaanite, the Canaanites out little by little, you think, oh, well, that, that makes sense. One final point, there is a strict boundary to the land that Israel was to take. God doesn't say, go wherever you like, do whatever you like. They were not to be warmongers. They were not to be empire builders like other nations. No one else would ever be able to claim God's instruction for this kind of event. So that's a brief summary of the conquest. It still doesn't make for easy reading. I'm not trying to sanitize it. I'm just trying to make clear what is and isn't happening and why it was that it happened. There was violence in God's judgment being brought to pass. There is never a happy ending for those who oppose God, whether it comes to them in this life or the one to come. Never, because he is the source of all goodness. And when you rebel against him, when you turn against him, you embrace death. Jesus and the New Testament writers are just as emphatic about this as the Old Testament. So although the story is going to change, again, the underlying reality is the same. But judgment need not be the end of the story, as we will see later on. All right, part two. Kind of gear change, kind of not, but kind of. So, do you remember that scene we read at the beginning? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> okay, let me remind you. Joshua looks up and sees a man who declares himself to be the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua says, maybe he was taken by surprise, and Joshua's ready for a fight, so he's like, okay, who are you? Are you for us or our enemies? No. No. You need to get on my side. That is the implication. And Joshua does this immediately by worshipping him and by asking for instructions. So presumably, you know, if someone says, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord, and Joshua's like, okay, well, that makes me your second in command, what are we going to do? Well, what you're going to do, Joshua, is you're going to take your sandals off, because this is holy ground. And then he is given a promise that Jericho will be given into his hands, despite how secure it seems to be. And then he is given a battle plan, and it makes no earthly sense. Now, this encounter would probably have reminded, well, would have reminded Joshua of what had happened to his predecessor, Moses. So if you know the Old Testament, you're like, this sounds familiar. It is familiar. Moses also had an unexpected meeting with God, which required him to remove his sandals because the place that he was standing on was holy ground. And as Joshua's thinking about this, Maybe he's reminded that Moses had also been given a plan to carry out, which made no earthly sense. God says to him, I'll send you to Pharaoh, the mightiest king on earth, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, who were Pharaoh's slaves. 
And Moses basically spends quite a long time saying, I, I don't, I'm not sure I believe it, I'm not sure I can do it. It doesn't make any sense. But God had said it, and God did it. There's also someone else that we're meant to think of here. There's another scene that happens a lot earlier. So after God has spoken to Abraham and Sarah and said, go to the land I'm going to give you, basically what Abraham does is he travels the length and breadth of the land, goes from the north to the south and back again, and he worships God. He builds temples in different places, builds altars in different places, worshiping God. And what is Joshua to do? Well, he is to travel the length and breadth from the north to the south of the land, preparing it that God might be worshipped there. And in Genesis 18, Abraham has an encounter where he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And don't let the maths of that put you off from seeing that this is the same thing. Abraham's response is the same as Joshua's. He bows himself to the earth and says, O Lord, I am your servant. And then Abraham learns what Joshua already knows, which is there is a city facing destruction for its sins. In the story of Abraham, it's Sodom. In the story of Joshua, it's Jericho. And then, just in case you still weren't convinced, one person and their family escape from that judgment thanks to two men. In Joshua, it's the two spies. In uh, Genesis, it's the two angels who are described as men. Okay, so that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? You're meant to think that. Why? What is this parallel saying to us? Well, I think it's saying at least three things. Firstly, that God keeps his promises. When, Abraham, when this story starts with Abraham, Abraham has no children. He has no children with Sarah. And yet God says to him, yet again, I am going to make a nation of you, and you are going to take the land that I give to you. So as Joshua thinks about this, he thinks, well, that, okay, that has happened. There was two of them. Now, There are many of them. And now we are going into that land that God has promised. So it tells us that God keeps his promises. Secondly, it's to remind us of what Abraham says to God. God, He says, surely the judge of all the earth will do what is just. That is a resonant phrase from that story. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. Yes, he will. This isn't, oh, I wonder if he's going to or not. This is a statement of faith. He would have spared Sodom from destruction, we're told, if just 10 righteous people had been found there. There was basically one man and his family, and so God got them out. Lot. And the third thing we're meant to see from this, again, God chooses Abraham and Sarah, says you're going to fill the land. And like, we literally have no children. It's another plan that doesn't make any earthly sense. So in three different diaries, Three different ways, directly and then through these two parallels, Joshua is told this battle belongs to the Lord. As Zechariah promised, always, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Any success that Joshua has will only be because of his obedience to Almighty God. God has arranged it so. And the same is true for God's people today. Now, there's one more association we're meant to make with Joshua. It's kind of obvious, but we're going to do it. So Jesus, whose name is basically the same as Joshua, 
He entered the promised land on a mission of conquest. And actually, he went through the Jordan River to do it, just as Joshua did. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and then came out. Joshua began his campaign with a blast of trumpets. We're told in this story, you are to make a really loud noise with trumpets. Well, the people of Israel had already been told that when they took the land, every 50 years, they were to have a year of jubilee. This was when people would be released uh, from slavery. It's when they would uh, have their property restored to them. It's when they would have their debts cancelled. It's just this wonderful, life-changing moment for all God's people of liberation. And anyone want to guess how that year of jubilee would be announced to the whole nation? Trumpets. When Jesus begins his campaign, he goes to a synagogue, doesn't have a trumpet, but he reads from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, that is, the year of Jubilee. And so begins the ultimate liberation. Because Jesus surpasses Joshua. That is why we find this text difficult, because that is no longer how God is going to advance his kingdom. Joshua was a soldier. Jesus is the saviour. He defeats evil wherever he goes, not with a sword, but by speaking grace and truth by healing the sick and casting out demons, by meeting pride with humility and selfishness with service and hypocrisy with true faith, and ultimately, not by killing people, but by being killed, by dying for his enemies. Jesus put himself in the place of punishment, taking God's judgment for many on the cross, God's righteous anger at the sins of millions and billions was poured out on him to the very last drop so that God's love and mercy could be poured out on all those who put their hope in him. While we were still weak at the right time, Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Just again to say again, this is why anyone would be anyone here who is troubled by the violence in Joshua's conquest, Christian or not, the reason you are is because the teaching and the acts of Jesus have so radically impacted our culture that that's what we think is the right thing to do. And all the people in all the lands around the ancient Middle East where Joshua was would never have thought this. And all the people in the Roman Empire would never have thought this. God came and changed it. Contrast continues. Joshua died and was buried. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And he is the commander of the armies of the Lord with all authority in heaven 
and on earth. And as his disciples beheld him unexpectedly and worshipped him like Joshua did, he gave them his command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go with the sword of my word. Bury them in baptism that you might raise them again to new life. And go not just to one place, but to the whole earth with this liberating good news. So that brings us up to date. We're going to look at Jesus' mission for his people to finish up just in a few moments. But I need to bring your attention to his message to you if you haven't put your faith in him. For he said it is okay to explore difficult passages and experiences that maybe you've had in your life in order to come to an understanding of God's goodness. We can do that in a way that doesn't hold God in judgment, but that seeks to understand what's going on and trust him and love him more. But there is a way in which people do judge God. Are you for me or against me? They ask. We ask. Will you conform to my preferences and my expectations? Will you do what I want you to do or not? And if you ask the question like that, his answer will be no. But if you will bow before him and if you will ask him to save you and to lead you, he will surely answer yes with all his loving heart. This is the challenge and the hope that Jesus offers every person on earth, that he offers you today. Get on my side. He alone can offer you true liberty, freedom from the sin that distorts and destroys you and those around you, freedom from the idols that control you, that want you just to make sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and are never, ever satisfied. He will free you from there. He alone can free you from judgment and death. He alone can conquer and drive out those things. Today, you can bow down before him. You can worship him as your Lord and God. Will you do that? He can be your saviour. You do not want him as your enemy. For those of us who have done this, we are recruited to follow him in proclaiming his good news. We must honour him like Joshua did. We worship him, as our recent People of Praise series reminded us. And honouring also means that the battle belongs to him. We must fight his way. We trust him that prayer and holiness, that love and service are the ways that he will use. We think that doesn't sit. I'm not sure if that's going to work. I'm not sure that's the, that there are other better ways. And Jesus says, no, I want it like this because I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. And we present him as he has revealed himself in his word even when that clashes with the culture that we live in. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, We have renounced 
disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That is honoring our commander. And related to that, we obey him. Joshua is told, do it like this, and then see me act. So are we. We're responsible for obedience. He is responsible for success. That is a great deal. It is his strength at work in us, not ours. Not everyone will accept the good news when we offer it to them. It's not necessarily because we did a poor job. Many of us here have that. You're just always waiting to feel guilty. You tell someone about Jesus and they're not interested. You're like, I knew I did it wrong. Most people didn't accept Jesus. Like literally Jesus. I mean, could anyone have done it better? (laughs) And that is part of the terrifying reality of judgment being present in the New Testament too. Luke 10, Jesus says to his disciples, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, says Jesus, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Sodom. Maybe we could also say it will be more bearable on that day for Jericho than for that town. But that is God's responsibility. Ours is to tell them. People won't always believe the gospel, but they have to have heard it in order to believe. That is what we're responsible for. And so I just want to encourage you, more than encourage, tell you, because Jesus is telling us, whenever, however we can, we must share this. We must tell people about him. One of the ways that will look like for us as a church is planting churches so that this can happen elsewhere as well. So we honour him, we obey him, and then we finally believe him. It's kind of implied in those two other things, but I'm just saying it again. So for some of you today, the battle for faith is to trust and delight in God's goodness. He is not good-ish. He is good all the time. But we're meant to go beyond that. He is good. We believe that he is good. So... We will get alongside our commander and believe what he says he is going to do. David Oginde comments, Sometimes all we can see are mighty walls and closed gates, but the God who brought Jericho down is able to bring them down. Whether it happens in a week like Jericho or over years like the rest of the conquest or centuries, maybe millennia like the Great Commission, God will do what he has promised. He calls us today to believe him, trust him. He says, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now I have come. Let's pray.
It's just this moment of quiet where you can bring your attention to God who has been getting your attention today. I want to say this particularly to you if you are not, you know you haven't put your trust in Jesus. He has spoken to you very clearly today, even through words that might have troubled you. It's all right to be troubled by God. He's saying to you today, I'm calling you to surrender calling you to lift up your hands in surrender. And I will take those hands with my nail-pierced hands and I will bring you to myself and I will embrace you. That love is there for you. That freedom is there for you. You have to ask him to take it. You have to ask him. You do it by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. So sorry, I've just lived my own way. I've fought against you, knowingly, unknowingly, but I've fought against you. I've been wrong in so many ways. Lord, forgive me. Lord, what you did on the cross, I believe that was for me. That the judgment I deserved, you took, Jesus. I believe that. I want to give you my whole life. You can pray that right now. You might just need to keep talking with God about that for as long as it takes. That's absolutely fine. No one's going to hurry you. No one's going to rush you. I would encourage you to talk to someone having done that because everything has just changed. You need God to help you and he brings people around that that would happen. I can speak to myself. There's other people around who I can introduce you to who can help you with this and help you to take those next steps. And now those of you who do follow Jesus and who do know he's good, guys, let's honour him. Let's obey him. Let's believe him. There are walls that he would have you see come down as you pray, as you act in faith, as you declare his truth, there are walls he's gonna, you're going to see come down. You know what that means for you. Why don't you just ask him right now again, say, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. Oh, God, won't you do that? Won't you do that? That situation, that area, that sin on my own life or in our nation, Ask him again now, commander of the armies of the Lord. Oh God, bring them down. 